0: Welcome to the Managing Managers podcast. I'm your host, Patrick Quar, founder of the Tech Lead Academy and curator of the newsletter for leaders in tech, Level Up. In this podcast, I'm chatting with senior engineering managers, directors, VPs of engineering, and others who have walked the path of managing other managers, where we will uncover some great stories and lessons learned. Let's get started. Hi, everyone. Today we have Alexandra Sunderland, and Alexandra Sunderland is an engineering leader with over a decade of experience working in both hybrid and remote roles at companies ranging from 10-person startups to public corporations. She is currently a director of engineering at Fellow App, where she is helping to build the future of work. She prides herself on building emotionally intelligent processes for teams and sharing her knowledge of management through conference talks and written works. Alexandra is the author of the book, Remote Engineering Management, The Guide for Empathic and People-First Management in a Remote World. Welcome to the podcast, Alexandra.
1: Thanks so much. It's great to be here.
0: It's a uh, really wonderful. And you know, I think your book resource is going to be a fantastic resource given our current day and age. We'll, we'll get to that a little bit more. But first, I'd love to hear a little bit about your leadership story. So how did you start getting into leading teams?
1: Yeah, well, I've been an engineer for quite a while now. I started uh, about 11 years ago as an engineer, went remote almost right away. And I joined the 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 company I currently work at, Fellow. I joined about five years ago as employee number 12, engineer number four. So very, very early on. And the great thing about working at startups that early is that there's so much room for growth and so much room for creating processes and, and building up Teams, and I, I joined um, when I when I joined. I was an engineer, but very quickly turned into a manager within the first uh, year or two. I think of joining, and because the team was growing so much uh, over time, and it got to a point where I think there were ten people reporting to the CTO, and so we just needed to do a split because that was too many people reporting to one person. And I naturally became. The, the first engineering manager there. And then a little bit after that, I, I grew to have nine people reporting to me, which was too many for uh, too many for me to manage at that point. And so we, we split the teams again and kept doing this over and over until I ended up managing a team of managers uh, a little while ago. But I I feel like we're always growing as a team. And so I'm always on the lookout for new people to help develop skills of leadership, because I know there's going to be more opportunities very quickly for them to move into that role too.
0: Yeah, I mean, that is such a fantastic opportunity as you describe with startups getting in really early, particularly as they're growing, of just having more opportunities. Uh, obviously the timing becomes a little bit hard when suddenly, yeah, you have nine people that you have to manage and it's quite a large group uh, needing to split that. What was your transition into managing a team like? What sort of support did you have as you transitioned into managing people for the first time?
1: I think, so it felt like a very natural transition to me because even as an engineer, I had been doing a lot of management related tasks. So I had been creating onboarding processes. I had been setting up the interview process and making sure that everything was going very smoothly with the team. So it, it felt very natural. And I I didn't get the, as most people don't get, I didn't get like any sort of formal training or anything like that at the time, but I did have a lot of support from our CEO and CTO, and they were sending me so many book recommendations uh, to read about how to be a great leader and, and a great manager, and uh, came across your resources as well, actually, and watched a lot of your talks and, and read some of your, your works. So oh, thank you. All of that was very helpful.
0: Oh, that's really fantastic to hear, and uh, there are so many good resources out there today, And a lot of people don't know about them, unfortunately, until you find yourself in those roles. But it's great that you had people who redirected you and pointed you at these resources as well. Um, Let's talk about that transition as you started to lead um, other managers or manage other managers. So what was that transition point like? So you had a team you were managing. It grew really rapidly. What was that time frame before you decided to split that team? And how did you decide to split it?
1: Well, I don't even remember now because there was a period of time where I think every three to six months we were doing like a little bit of a reorg on the engineering side because we were just hiring at such a rapid pace. And because we were a startup as well, the needs of the business were constantly changing. So there would be one period of time where we'd be really focused on app development. And then the next where we would really want to focus on our notes editor or calendar or, or whatever it is. And so it felt like the team structure was just always evolving to best support that. And so I, I think that when I started managing managers it might've been, if I'm getting the timeline right, it might've been actually a year ago. Now I remember, yes, it was a year ago that I started managing managers. And it, it felt very natural because I had started to take on a lot of the uh, product engineering type of uh, decisions being made. So I was doing a lot of work directly with the design leaders, the product leaders, and it felt very natural for me to look look after all the teams that related to product engineering very specifically, because I I, I love that side of things. I I, I see code. I, I love code, but I see it more as like a tool to create a great product instead of code being beautiful for the sake of code. So I took over... That side of things, while our CTO kept the teams related to SRE infrastructure, the more like heavy-duty code that I'm not quite as well versed in as he is. So the the transition went very well, though. I think we what we ended up doing is dividing up the teams so that I. Uh, manage the enterprise team, the apps team, and the meetings team, which I find is a very cool concept of a team because we're... So F- Fellow is a, a meeting management platform where we help you create agendas, take notes, do all these things related to meetings. And this is such a core concept to us. So we created just a meetings team overall that looks after the notes editor, the calendar, and and all of, uh, all of these things. So I took on these teams... Uh, and, and he took on the growth engineering team and the SRE team.
0: Amazing. And it sounds like some of your interests also gravitate towards that product space of thinking more holistically. I heard you say, you know, code is not just about code. It's a really a means to an end of solving some problem. Uh, it's nice that it's beautiful, but it's not really the only thing that matters, uh, what were some things that helped you transition into that area? Uh, was that already something that you'd talked with your manager around, around wanting to have more uh, ownership of the product? Or was that just something that you started to, to just keep Helping out because uh, it was kind of needed.
1: It was a little bit of need based, and also it's something that I, I really wanted because I, I love it when teams work really efficiently together. And I, I really, really love communicating with other teams and making sure that things are going well. So I was seeing that we were kind of falling through the cracks in some places because there was this division originally of, uh, you know, like Al managed the enterprise team, he'll manage. Uh, whatever other teams we had at the time, both kind of product related. And it felt like we, not everyone was always on the same page. Things weren't going super smoothly. So I was naturally stepping up and creating new ways of communicating with a product team, making sure that everything was uh,
0: going very well. I was just trying to understand how you found yourself in that space, if it was something that you were pushed into or more of your own interest. Uh, it sounds like it was something that you were once again filling a need of what the business needed and then somebody gave you that sort of official title of saying, hey, you're already doing these things, uh, do more of it. Yes.
1: Yeah. And so I, at some point asked uh, for the ability to manage all of these other teams, because I felt like if everything falls under one person, then it will go more smoothly. And, uh, And in January of this year, I think is when we made that change so that everything that's under product engineering would fall under me
0: amazing and if you think about some of the responsibilities or activities that you do now managing other managers that you wouldn't do as a say engineering manager what would be some concrete examples
1: i think in my case a lot of the things that i do now are very similar to what i was doing before as an engineering manager probably because we were a a startup and you know you you take on a lot more responsibility when you're a growing team and there's needs so even as an engineering manager I was creating the career ladder. I was creating the onboarding process. Uh, I was doing a lot of those things that typically don't fall on managers. But what I find myself doing a lot more now as a director is taking on business-critical decisions and making sure that they're executed on instead of being given a decision and told to see it through. And there's uh, there's something exciting about that, but also something incredibly stressful. Where you know you'll scary. <laughs> it's so scary, just make, making a decision, but also not having the the direct control over its outcome anymore because you're trusting your teams to to follow through on it and, and make something happen. So that that is something that is very different from what I was doing before.
0: That's a really great example and it resonates with a lot of people in a director-like role of where you have more scope but ironically less direct control. Uh, You know you have these objectives that you need to deliver and you need to see these out. What are some of the things that help you influence and give you confidence that things are on track? So can you think of an example where um, you have a critical business decision that you need to make happen now, and how do you make sure that happens?
1: Mm. I think that we have a, a lot of checkpoints set up with between me and the, the managers of different teams which help out a lot with that. So, for example, every Monday morning, we have a dev lead Sync meeting where it's me and all the other engineering managers in the company, uh, our CTO included. And that's where we'll talk through some of those decisions that have been made, how they're going, how they're being carried out, and uh, just for, for more visibility for everyone in the company or everyone on the engineering uh, leadership team. Uh, one-on-ones are also a great place to really drive down a decision, make sure that that it's being followed through, and uh, ask deeper questions. But something that I love as well for, for understanding what's going on within the company is that almost all of our channels in Slack are public. So unless there's a reason that some information needs to be kept private, which is a very rare reason, uh, then we default to public always. And that means that any project that's going on, any sort of initiative, whatever it is, will have a Slack channel that's public that I'll join and maybe I'll mute it so I don't get the little red dot all the time that's like constantly interrupting me. But I I will have that insight to be able to at any moment go see what is going on with this. Are is progress being made? Are the decisions being carried through? And within all of those Slack channels too, like for, for a project, we'll we'll set up automations. So um, because remote work, sometimes it's hard to update people on what's going on and to remember, to communicate. So one of the things I love that we've done is set up these workflows in Slack where every day at a certain time, there will be an automated message posted just saying, how are you feeling about the project? What's going on? Uh, What issues are you running into that we can solve together? I love it. Yeah, it's great. And everyone will reply to that. We have different versions of this too, where sometimes we do like the, the stoplight method where people are supposed to react with like, from red to green, how are you feeling about the situation? The
0: pulse of the day.
1: Yeah, it's so useful. Because people. if you're feeling bad about something, you might not always say it. But if you put like a red emoji, I think this project is off track, that opens a conversation. And people are going to talk about it sooner than the weekly check-in or whatever it is that you do.
0: No, that's great. And really building into some of the tools and really taking advantage of it. I think that's such a great idea. And uh, exactly what you talked about when people are remote is people forget about things, people in different time zones, and just having that, that heartbeat, regular cadence is really nice to have uh, some of that tooling in place. One of the things I heard you say, um, and I find it interesting that everything is public, uh, which is there's probably a lot of information. Uh, in your role, you also probably are interested in, in a lot of information, but you can't read everything. So what's your strategy for dealing with so many different teams, so many different topics? How do you manage your time as a director?
1: Yeah, oh, it's it's so hard because at first when I became a, a director, I, I felt kind of odd to be handing over Uh, um, the teams to other people because like, I'm not directly involved in the work anymore. And so at first I went through a phase of like, I need to know everything that's going on because (laughs) I I need information. I need to make sure things are on track. Oh,
0: it's
1: so much. And it it, it was way too much information because there's, there's way more going on than you can ever realistically keep on top of. And so we'd, uh, I'd created all these communication paths and updates and then eventually just like muted everything <laughs> so that I can go check at will instead of have, instead of like reading everything that comes in all the time. Um, but one of the things that we do as a part of the, the Monday dev leadership meeting that I mentioned is each team lead will write out what's going on on their team. And so it'll be just a high level. Here's how the project is going. Here's the good, here's the bad, here's what we need to talk about. And I find that very, very useful because that also makes sure that our one-on-ones aren't used for status updates. Because status updates are okay once in a while in one-on-ones, but I am pretty big on making sure that the the one-on-ones I have with my managers are related to them and issues on their team rather than just how the team is functioning as a status update. So I, I find that though having them send information to me that way is very useful, but then having the channels available so that whenever I feel like I need a little bit more info, I can go check there instead. And, uh, and I, I find that very good too, to have those channels publicly available because then I can self-serve information instead of going to the manager and asking questions when, you know, they probably have better things to do than answering my my little questions here and there.
0: No, that's a really great example. And uh, the fact that it's also public means that other teams can also get insight into what's going on with other parts of the organization, which I know from startup land can be often very difficult considering everyone's just working in their different team silos without a lot of transparency. So it's not just helping you, but also helping other parts of the organization, which I think is a, is a good habit to have. I think what's interesting is that sort of standardization, perhaps, of the weekly up, uh, update as to what teams are doing. Uh, what other standard things do you have as mandates or encouraged things that teams should be doing? So each team can run their processes differently, but where do you say every team has to do these things in a similar format? Mm-hmm.
1: We have some very similar processes around linear so we, we use linear as our project management tool and we make sure that everybody has the same uh, statuses across that so that we know when something's on staging when it's deployed uh, because the QA team works across all the teams and so if every team had a separate process that would be that would be a, a little bit difficult for them to deal with um, and we also make sure that everybody has the same, weekly one-on-ones on their teams. Like one-on-ones are just so important in our company, so we make sure that that is standardized across all of engineering. Um, we also have uh, team meetings that's are that are, are not standardized in format, but standardized in that they need to happen. And the, the team meetings are more about connecting as people and socializing rather than. Uh, accomplishing work together, which is a, a little bit of a departure from other people. I, I think it helps that we're not doing like sprints or, or things like that. We, we have longer eight-week build cycles, so we don't need to be constantly going over a, a sprint board. And uh, another process that I, I love that we all do together is our engineering retrospective, which is super important uh, on our team. And it's something we've been doing for I want to say four years now, but consistently every six months, we as an entire engineering org, get together and sit down and do this uh, like half async remote retro and it 's really, really good because it's it 's something where everyone gets to talk about what they like about the team, what 's not great about the team, and we should kind of figure out relatively soon and then what is just like going so poorly we need to solve right now is the worst thing in the world. Uh, And I I love these processes because it allows everyone to talk very freely about things that are bugging them, and that makes everyone feel more like they're a part of a team. And it's it's there's something so nice about listening to other people complain about the same things that you encounter and then working together to come up with a solution it's, it's one of my favorite things that we do
0: yeah i love it i, I i'm also a passionate uh, fan of retrospectives of creating that safe space as you say to create visibility as to these pain points that team members are having there's often that empathy of oh yeah you're facing that same pain point or you feel that way as well uh, and you're right which is that channeling that energy not just to to complain and mope, but also to then, you know, do something about it and to hopefully improve the work environment. So that's really fantastic to hear. Um, I'd like to change topics a little bit to your book. So uh, you recently published a book on remote engineering management. So congratulations first. Thank you. Uh, given the current state of the world, uh, in a lot of the people that I work with, they've settled probably more on hybrid, um, with fewer probably remote or fully remote. Uh, but I think it's going to be a really valuable resource. So why did you decide to write? Uh, why did you decide to write this book?
1: So my husband had been trying to convince me to write this for quite a while, actually. And I I finally sat down and did it because a friend of mine was doing NanoRimo, which is the national novel writing month of November. And uh, she wanted a writing accountability buddy. And I was the only friend who said yes. Uh, it was <laughs> a very big thing to do. The burp, The point of it is you write 50,000 words over the course of November, which is a lot of words. That's a,
0: a that is a lot.
1: It's a long blog post every single day, and I thought I'll, I'll do it. I'll, I'll write about this topic that my husband's been trying to convince me to write about for a while, and I ended up at the end of November with a book that's I, I managed to get published. But I, I wanted to write about remote engineering management specifically because I had been working remotely already for. At that point, it must've been eight years or so, but now it's been uh, 11. And I felt like everybody in the world had done a good job of embracing remote work and people were good at knowing to mute themselves on video calls when they weren't talking and you know the, the basics like that. But I felt like there was still a lot of stuff missing that people didn't know about yet that could really... Uh, like up-level how they were working and, and things that... There were a lot of lessons that I had learned over the years that I felt would take a long time for others to pick up on. So I wanted to just put that all out there so that everyone could be the best remote manager that they could.
0: It's really fantastic. And uh, I think we definitely need more of those resources. So definitely recommend people check it out We'll make sure that the link is in the show notes as well. Um, from your perspective, how do you think remote changes management or, or the role for entering managers?
1: There are a lot of obvious answers to that. Like, I think the first one everyone's going to say is you have to be so much more intentional about communicating and building team culture and and all of that stuff because you're not seeing each other day to day. But I think the, the biggest one that stands out for me is there's a lot more conflict resolution that happens when you're a manager, when you're remote, not specific to engineering. But I think there's something about you know when you're in the office if something happens and you're a little bit frustrated that you you might appear frustrated and the, someone else in the office might pick up on that and go hey what's going on let's talk about it things don't seem to be going very well because you have you have this body language and you can just talk it out but when you're remote i find that when you're on a video call people have kind of this veil where they might present themselves very differently than how they actually feel and I, I'm sure we've all had like video calls where we're in a meeting, we're happy, whatever, like we do the call and then you press end and you just go collapse on the bed. And you're like, that was the worst. I don't want to deal with this. I'm over <laughs> with meetings. And the that, that it's great and all that you can present yourself in the remote world without showing your emotions all the time. For some situations, that's that's great. People prefer it. But it also means that it's harder for people to pick up on things when, th- when there is a bit of conflict. And so I find that my, my role is I, because of my role, I have a lot of people coming to me saying, like, "Oh, this thing is so frustrating, I don't know what to do. And then maybe the other person involved in that conflict will also come to me saying, "Oh, I'm so frustrated by this, I don't know what to do." And the answer is almost almost always just go talk to each other like, this is very simple. Like If you just talk about it together, it'll get resolved, no problem. But I, I do a lot of that, just t- people coming to me with with problems and the answer is always just go mention it to the other person and it will be fine. And that was not something that happens uh, in person.
0: Yeah, I mean, it's such a great insight. And you're right, is that I think people have that difference of being at the end of a camera versus being in person. Uh, and then I can also think of teams where some of the team rituals mean that people don't have their video on all the time. And so it's even harder from that side because you just have whatever text or voice uh, messages that people have and trying to get a read into that, I can imagine that makes it really hard as a manager to understand. Uh, I think that's also really interesting from a mediation perspective, uh, because I guess if you're in an office, uh, you can probably get people into a room a little bit quicker than if you were remotely, maybe depending on scheduling and calendars. Uh, Do you have any tips for people about improving mediation in a remote uh, setting?
1: Yeah, I I think, so sometimes when, uh, especially as engineers, we love solving problems. And so when someone comes to you with a problem, often it's easy to just listen to them and then try to solve it for them and either give them a, a solution or say, oh, okay, I'll go talk to, whoever it is, or, or the group of people, whatever is going on, I'll go solve it for you. And I, I don't think that that's necessarily the best way of going about things in most cases, because then that other person isn't going to learn how to solve their own uh, problems in the future. And it's, it's, you know, uh, often basic communication skills that needs to be built up for it to thrive in the workplace. So I find, uh, being able to tell someone, um, that's great, what have you done to try to solve this? Or like, what did the person say when you mentioned to this? And uh, asking questions like that will get them to... In the future, more often, go directly to people and try to try to figure things out for themselves instead of coming through you as a mediator.
0: I think that's some great tips. And I know from experience of working with those engineering managers, uh, it can be hard to turn off that problem-solving mode, right? Because as an engineer, you're used to solving problems. That's like the primary thing. But when you're mediating, it's hard to not do that as well and to turn off that habit.
1: Yeah. And it feels so good to solve problems for people. Like I, I love I love saying, don't worry, I got this and just <laughs> making things better.
0: Absolutely. Uh, in your book, you cover one-to-ones from a few different angles. And um, one interesting thing I found in the book was you talk about how um, there are some reasons why one-to-ones are actually better remote. So can you provide a little bit more context about that?
1: Yeah, I know it doesn't sound... Like that would be the logical conclusion at all because everyone's always saying that in-person, you know, it's a real person. It's not just a screen. And and I agree to an extent. There, there is a lot that is great about in-person one-on-ones, and I still do them when I can. But remote one-on-ones, I find are you get deeper conversations. So it's kind of like the phenomenon of when you're out on a walk with someone or sitting in a car driving you naturally just talk more in depth about how you're feeling, what's going on. And I, I think part of that is because you're not looking directly in each other's eyes. And so it's not this like odd presence in front of you where you really know that you're saying something to a person. With remote one-on-ones, it's sort of the same thing. Like you might be able to look around the room more easily. Like if you're, if you're in, a, in person together, then it's awkward to not be sitting there looking at their eyes, but, but remotely it's totally fine. And there are all these other benefits too. Like you you get more comfortable. Like right now, even on the podcast, I'm sitting cross-legged, but you would never be able to tell. <laughs> <laughs> and I couldn't do that in an office that would look, I mean, you could, but I'm not going to, because I would feel very awkward about it. So I'm more comfortable here with my, my legs, my blanket. Uh, I can fidget with things. Um, but then another benefit too, is that I, I'm able to look at my notes on the screen right next to... Your face and notes are very helpful for one-on-ones because often there are a bunch of topics to talk about. You want that agenda in front of you, and you want to be able to take notes uh, without it being too awkward. Because I've done a lot of in-person one-on-ones where one person will bring their laptop and the other won't, and you're the manager. They're they're talking to you about some problem they're having, and you're taking notes, and you, you feel so like uh, something feels wrong about that, and. Remotely, you are not like you can go on mute and then they're not going to know that you're sitting there typing. So I love that. And I love the fact that you know when time is up because as managers, you'll often have meetings back to back. And in person, I, I find it so awful that I sometimes pull up my phone to check the time so that I'm not late for my next meeting because it feels like you don't care about the person in front of you when you do. So I, I think that remote one-on-ones are great because the time is right there in the corner. You're not obviously looking off the clock. Like people don't feel pressured by the time. So there are all these benefits. You, you get deeper conversations. It's easier to take notes. You're not pressured by clocks. I, I just really think that it's, it creates an environment to have better conversations with people.
0: Great. I love it. And I, I think there are those trade-offs. And I think it's interesting to be able to experiment with both. But I, I love all the points that you talk about. and I can definitely see some of them. It reminds me a little bit of when I was doing those interviews in person versus interviewing remotely. Same with the note-taking. Uh, doing remote uh, note-taking on a laptop's a lot easier because it's not distracting. But when you have that laptop in the middle of the room between you and a candidate, then it's a little bit more awkward. Oh, yeah. One of the other things that you talked about in your book was about uh, peer one-to-ones. So uh, what are maybe some peer one-to-ones that you currently do? Do you run them similarly or how do you run them uh, compared to your normal one-to-ones with your uh, reports?
1: Yeah, I, I have a lot of peer one on ones because I, I find that as a manager, your your direct team often is the, the people in the other departments that you collaborate with. And so I have pure one on ones with the head of design, the head of customer success, head of marketing, uh, one of our staff engineers, uh, head of growth engineering, probably some more people that I'm forgetting.
0: <laughs> <laughs> A lot of people. I'm getting the impression of.
1: Oh yeah, yeah. Somebody from from just about every area of of the business because I you work so closely with with these people, and they're. The structure is a little bit different from how I do normal one-on-ones. They're still set up on a recurring basis, so I, I do these every two weeks, uh, and depending on the person, anywhere from twenty to uh, twenty minutes to an hour. And I they're a little bit more social. So my my one-on-ones with other with my team are more about coaching and feedback and and that sort of stuff. But with peers, a lot of it is. Uh, social time, so we'll just catch up on what's going on in our lives. I, I am lucky that all of these people also happen to be my friends, so it's it's nice having that built in. It's a great place to be. Yeah, um, but then the rest of the time is either talking about the work that's upcoming from both sides. So anything that we're doing that maybe the marketing team should be aware of, or um, the head of CS will give us feedback on things that trends that they're noticing on the support side. Uh, features that the enterprise customers are asking for. And we'll talk about how our teams are working together overall because very often there's something that we could do to make how we collaborate better, and we'll try to hash that out together.
0: Yeah, lovely. Excellent. And if you think about uh, one-to-ones with your uh, reports who are managers versus one-to-ones with, say, an individual contributor and a team, do you think there are any differences between them? And if so, what would be those differences?
1: Yeah, I, I think so. There are a lot of common elements between both types. Uh, they're both focused a lot on things like coaching, giving feedback, uh, answering any questions that they have. I think when I have one-on-ones with the managers that report to me though, a lot of it is also focused on providing business context. So going over a lot of the the business side of things so that they have a good understanding of what's going on because inevitably the people on their teams are going to ask them questions like, "Oh, what is this? what does this ARR mean and how is it impacting the features that we're building next cycle? Just we're very transparent within the company overall. So everybody has access to, you know, all of our, all of our business numbers. Um, So I want to be able to make sure that they're prepared with the ability to answer those things when they come up. So uh, a lot of that, but I, I also really love focusing on managers as people and how they can develop themselves instead of just using the time to focus on their teams and how, uh, how the you know, the status updates we talked about earlier. I really ma- want to make sure that they're growing as managers, they're still developing their tech skills as well, and, and really talking about them.
0: Excellent. Great. Uh, one of the things I heard you say with one-to-ones, probably common across both uh, one-to-ones with managers and individual contributors, was feedback uh and so um, when you're thinking about feedback for managers um, in an environment where maybe you don't get to be part of their ceremonies, how do you go about getting feedback for your managers?
1: Yeah, I, I think so there, there are two kind of sides of, of feedback when, that I think of when I think of managers. It's how they're interacting with me and then also how they're interacting with their teams and for how they're interacting with their teams. Uh, it's, I it's am able to collect that kind of feedback pretty regularly because I also do skip level one-on-ones uh, and I set those up to be every six weeks uh, with each person individually. And I set those up as a recurring basis because otherwise it's so easy to just go a whole year without talking to someone unintentionally. But I, I really want to make sure I have time on the calendar to talk with everybody in the org.
0: Yeah, your calendar fills up fast, right?
1: Yeah, so I, I have those meetings with people and part of that is how they're doing with people, how they're developing, how they're feeling. But then there's always a component of like, how, how is the team, how are, how is your manager supporting you? And so I'm able to collect feedback that way that I can then deliver to the person outside of the normal 360 feedback cycle. Cause that only happens twice a year and that's not enough to be, um, you know, six months is a long time for someone to go without feedback. Absolutely. So, there, there's that side, and then there's the side of how they interact with me. And so, I think often the feedback will be along the lines of um, whether or not I feel like I'm being informed about things that aren't going well. You know, I, I never want someone to sweep a problem under the rug, I want to make sure that we're solving things together and really on top of what's going on. Um, And then how they're interacting with other teams as well, which is where those peer one-on-ones come in handy as well. Because maybe there'll be feedback sometimes where it's like, oh, this team released something and we had no idea it was coming. And so the help center docs are all out out of date and this could have been prevented easily. So the feedback I would get from that would be to go to the team and say, we've got to we've got to be better at communicating here with uh, with other people.
0: Excellent. No, that's, that's a really fantastic. And you're right, is that the two uh, or twice a year, sort of 360 degree feedback isn't really quick enough. So it's great to have more regular feedback for your managers as well. Uh, one of your uh, responsibilities, I expect, is probably knowing that your engineering managers are doing a good job. How do you quantify that? Or how do you think about what does a engineering manager do and how do you know they're doing a good job?
1: I think a lot of that comes down to, are we hitting our goals? Are, are we shipping the projects that we say we're going to ship uh, and are they high quality? And at the same time, is the team happy? Because if we're hitting our goals and we're shipping things, but the team is burnt out and everyone's suddenly taking vacation because they just can't work anymore, that is not a good outcome because that team's not going to succeed long-term and... I, I don't want that, and it's also uh, not good to have the opposite, where the team is happy but they're not shipping anything. Because you know that's that's great for them, but they're not going to be growing in their careers, and, and I think we're going to have problems as a business overall if that's how we operate. So those are the two things I, I really look at, and. Um, we're, we we have these product engineering sync meetings where we're able to see like are we on track. Uh, this comes back to the the public channels I mentioned too, where we we have these check-ins saying how are things going, what's what's being shipped. So I'm able to check that to see are we are we on track, and then I'm able to use the skip level 101s to see are people really happy. How are they feeling about their work and do they feel like they're contributing to the success of the business?
0: Great, excellent. Uh, as your business has grown uh, in your role as a director, I can imagine that you've probably had some new spots for new engineering managers. Have you uh, grown people into that role or did you hire people into that role if you had any of those spots?
1: Yeah, everyone who's a manager Fellow so far has started off here as an engineer. Amazing. Yeah, it's, it's great. We haven't hired externally yet. And I, I think that's really great because when you become a manager, when you're already on the team, you understand the code base, you understand a lot of the problems that we're having, the opportunities that are available, and you have the trust of the team already. So it's, we found it very important that whenever somebody moves into management, they have to be very well respected on the team. Otherwise, things uh, go poorly and like even when i became a manager um i asked our our cto like before making this decision you have to go ask every single person if they're okay with it because they're they're nice to me but if they secretly don't think that i would be a good manager i don't want the role <laughs> because there's nothing worse than leading a team that you don't have the respect of the people of so it's it's been very good but we're we're always on the lookout for people who uh, have signs of leadership and want that role too, because I never want to put someone who doesn't actually want to manage in that position. But uh, even now, there are people who have said that this is something that they would like the opportunity uh, when we have the need for it. And so we're sending them to management training. Um, one of them took your class, actually. Uh, the, I think the tech management essentials or <laughs> one of them. So that's been very helpful. But we're, we're like, creating these skills and giving them opportunities to try out management too. So managing like little projects here and there, before actually moving them into that
0: role. Great. Uh, it sounds like an amazing environment. And uh, it also sounds like you've probably put a more uh, greater support network as people move into that than what you had when you were going through that the first time.
1: Yeah, definitely. I mean, to be fair, we were still a very small company. I was the first person going into management. So it, it makes sense that there was nothing set up yet.
0: No, no, it's great. I mean, in other places, that those things don't change still, right, is that people just get on with execution. So I think it's also a good testament to the improvements that you've made of leaving it uh, in a better, easier path for newer managers as they transition in. Um, Let's uh, start wrapping up a little bit. And um, I want to maybe go back to the topic about managing managers. Uh, So, um, you know, what do you think has helped you managing managers over time? So what do you think has been the biggest thing that has helped you in your role as a director?
1: I think the biggest thing that's helped me is having... Uh, having our CTO to talk to. So our CTO, his name is Sam. I've been working with him actually for uh, eleven years as well. So the the very first company that I joined, he was the co-founder of. He's also the co-founder of Fellow. So I've, I've known I've known him for a very long time. But I think you know people always talk about how having a support network is so important as a manager. And I, I found it very helpful to just have him to go to to. You know, sometimes just rant about my problems uh, unproductively, but also sometimes just talk through my thinking, kind of like rubber duck debugging almost where, you know, I'll say something out loud and, and it helps me immediately just having him there to, uh, to, to talk back with me. So that has really been the the biggest thing, just having him there to, to help me through it.
0: That's fantastic. And uh, I'm glad that you have uh, somebody like that in your organization that you can go to with that history and uh, support. Uh, if there was any book or books that you would recommend to a person who's about to step into a managing manager's role, is there anything that you would really point them to?
1: Uh, I mean, of course, I'm going to say my book, Remote Engineering Management. But then the, the one that really helped me as well when I... Uh, Uh, a few years ago was Julie Zhu's book, which is The Making of a Manager. It's it's such a good book, such a nice read, um, very... Uh, storytelling-based. I, I really appreciated her approach to management.
0: Fantastic. And then if you were to give uh, yourself some advice, going back to your earlier self as you were stepping into your director role for the first time, what advice would you give yourself?
1: I would probably tell myself that it's okay to ask the managers as a report to me questions. And it's not going to seem like I don't trust them or trust what they're doing. Uh, it's, it's good to be informed about what's going on and really dig into things if something doesn't seem right. So I think it, it took me a few weeks at least to understand that um, even though they're managers, they still need support as well. And that is my role to really be there for them. It's not to just let them take over and, and do things on their own without support. So I I would definitely want to, if I could redo anything, it would be to be more involved right from the start and not be afraid to ask them questions.
0: Great answer and great insight as well. So thank you very much for sharing that. And my final question then is, where can people find out more about you or reach out to you?
1: People can find out more about me on my website, alexandra.s.dev, and I'm also on LinkedIn and Twitter.
0: Fantastic. And we will make sure that all of those links are in the show notes as well. Thank you so much, Alexandra, for all of your amazing insights and your stories as well. Uh, it's great to have a peek into what your world looks like and uh, also your growth journey. It just sounds like it's been a fun, really great environment to grow into both a manager and also a manager and manager. And it also sounds like there's lots more growth and lots more opportunity there as well. So thank you very much for being a guest on the podcast.
1: Thanks so much. It was great being here.
0: Thanks for listening to this episode of the Managing Managers podcast you can find the transcript and the show notes at www.managingmanagers.tech. If you enjoyed the content, please be sure to rate and subscribe to be informed about new episodes. Also, consider sharing this podcast with another person who might benefit. Until next time.